Amen. Well, this morning I turn your attention to this narrative in the book of 2 Kings in chapter 5. Um, so I, I think it's actually the perfect uh, narrative to encapsulate the, the emphasis uh, of some of the Apostle Paul's words and instructions, which I read for you earlier in 1 Timothy and chapter 6. So 1 Timothy chapter 6 is perhaps a wonderful, would read almost like a wonderful commentary, a wonderful sermon on what you should learn or how you should understand uh, what is going on in, as happened in 2 uh, Kings in chapter 5. So we're looking at this narrative uh, that takes place uh, during the ministry of one of the great prophets of Israel, the prophet Elisha. And I've actually preached on, uh, I've preached about Naaman's healing here and the healing of Naaman's leprosy in this, in this uh, this pulpit before, but we're focusing our attention majorly on uh, Gehazi's, uh, Gehazi's greed and uh, what happens with Gehazi in verses uh, like 15 towards 27 and um, what that has to say um, to believers today. Now, if you, uh, if you take both the fact that what we see from Gehazi is this demonstration, this display of greed, and then you read uh, quite accurately that First Timothy 6 has a lot to say about how we should think of riches and how believers should free from the love of money, then it doesn't, it's not hard to be able to, uh, to see and to conclude that the sermon this morning before we come to the Lord's table is going to ask you to um, appreciate what the Bible has to say about your relationship to money, about your attitude towards money, about how you, 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 you manage and what you think of, uh, of money. Now, um, it, it can be very easy for us to just take for granted what the Bible has to say about money or to even ignore what the Bible has to say to us about our money. I think one, good, one reason for that perhaps is that we, we sense that the Bible is not as excited about money as we are. Never mind what many... Um, what many preachers are sometimes saying, even in the pulpit and in the church today, I mean, they're lying. Um, but the Bible is not is not always is not as exciting, not as we are. Doesn't take the same approach to money as we do. Doesn't take the same viewpoint. Doesn't hold money maybe the same esteem that we do. That's not to say that the scriptures don't tell us that money can be a good thing. It can be a good thing, uh, and that money is, answers many problems, um, or that God does not know that we have needs. Indeed, we worship the God who promises to supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But it is to say that we also find that the Bible has a lot to warn us about when it comes to our relationship with money. That The Bible, knowing the human heart, almost warns us about the tendency of money to corrupt it. Um, It does not approve The Bible does not approve, doesn't vindicate our tendencies to make life all about money. Make money the most important thing and making money the most important thing. Doesn't attach the same significance that we often do to money. Um, The type that makes money the defining marker of our happiness, our identity, our success in this life. The Bible does not endorse our willingness to be more concerned with the fact that we make money than how we make money. So that we are 
corruptly willing to even choose currency over character. The Bible does not encourage our selfish desire to amass wealth just so that we can indulge in luxury while we are devoid of any genuine display of generosity towards those who are in need. The Bible rebukes our spiritual inertia, our spiritual dullness, which is inevitably the result of our capitulating to materialism so that we are more concerned, even as Christians, with making money than we are with making disciples. More careful to put on the right outfit than we are to put on Jesus Christ. We long for holidays and to travel the world more than we long for heaven and the world to come. The Bible condemns our foolishness in making money our refuge so that so much of our time is frittered away with anxiety and worry about when the next paycheck will come or how to improve our income. And we worry about becoming richer while at the same time indicating that there is a greed that has deprived us of contentment. Yet the Bible says godliness with contentment is true wealth. The Bible says that our desire, that it is, it is pitiable, that we desire to find so much security in wealth, that we, it means we know nothing of the risk that is associated with sacrificial living, sacrificial faith, sacrificial love. And it's this warning element. It's knowing that the Bible confronts us with this sort of reality that means that very often we are keen to avoid the topic of money. And we don't want people to touch our money unless, of course, they're saying something about how we can multiply it. But if we are to obey the whole counsel of God, we must face up to what the Bible has to say about money. The Bible doesn't say that money is in and of itself the problem. It's the human heart. Uh, but, but he does have a strong draw. It's a bit like uh, J.R. Tolkien's ring and uh, how it exposes. Uh, and and uh, the, 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 the person who found it saw his heart being drawn to achieve uh, his purposes regardless of how he did it. Somehow our, our, our hands coming in contact with money soon leads us to having to struggle with corrupt influences of wanting to make more. And the Bible has a lot to say about money. So if we ignore the Bible's teachings on money, then we're going to be ignoring a significant part of the scripture. You may have heard it said, heard it said and it, rightly so, that Jesus Christ had a lot to say about money. And in, in different contexts and with different, different perspectives at times. Um, but actually, you can summarize and say that one of the major emphasis that Jesus Christ gives us when he talks about money is that money can almost operate as a rival God, a competing God that challenges our allegiance to the true God and that we can't have both and that many people will lose their souls because they thought that it was worth it to gain the whole world and ignore the state of their souls. Money competes with God for our worship. 
And so because the Bible has this viewpoint, a lot of it, a lot of what he has to say is warning. So it's, it's so strange today in the church, you'll find some churches that in, 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 in a year's time, within a year, when it comes to talking about money, more time is spent teaching people how to open businesses, how to become influencers, how to get on the property ladder, how to double your income and have a side hustle. More time is spent organizing seminars, speaking about that stuff than warnings like the type that we read of in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul says, speak to those who are rich in this world. Instruct them. Warn them about the deceitfulness of riches. Warn them that with wealth will come great responsibility, that they have to be very careful, that the more they seem to be coming upon wealth, the wealth, the more they should be seeking to grow in true spiritual wealth. Warn them that actually what is at stake when it comes to our attitude to money is salvation itself, our faith itself, that actually there are some that because of the love of money have made shipwreck of their faith and are no longer following or trusting Christ. That's the way the Bible's balance of money is. That's how the Bible balances speaking about money. And if a congregation ever needed it, congregations in London, in the UK, need that kind of teaching. If a congregation ever needed, needed it, Hackney Evangelical Reformed Church on this corner of Lauriston Road really, really needs it. Because we, I, I, I would venture to suggest we belong to the rich that Paul speaks of in 1 Timothy 6. The rich in this world. We are in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Uh, most of you, I'm sure, are in the upper percentile of the rich bracket in the world. You belong to the richest percentage of people in the world. Okay, in that percentage, I know you're already, your head is already complaining, that, but do you, where am I in that percentage? And Okay, I hear that. I understand that. But you can't take for granted the potential you have in the UK, many of you, to make riches. Some, many of you already have a side hustle or are thinking of one. Many of you are on the property ladder and own good possessions. Many of you uh, have uh, wonderful jobs and that you're able to really, you can have great ambition in and you can, you can uh, develop in. And you are really, really faced with the uh, the threat of letting money usurp the place of God. For those of you who are not in any of those lists, you at least are faced on a day-to-day -day basis with the celebration of increasing your finances and, and money. And media throws it at you. Become richer. Become wealthier. And that's, what, that's where your heart is right now. You're our desire is, how do I make more money? And for those kind of people, this is an important message. So the Bible is so adequate. The Bible says, so scriptures say that the Bible is, is, uh, is sufficient for us, right? Um, the word of God is, 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 is sufficient to make us perfect, to equip us for righteousness. Is this message relevant though, Kende, in... COVID-19, 2020. This sort of climate, when some of us have just been furloughed, when 
you know, we're worried about an economic crisis and so on. Well, first of all, the word of God, of course, is always relevant. So it would be relevant anyway. But actually, it's COVID and the coronavirus crisis may have shown most of us that we are far wealthier than we think we are. Many of you for months, unable to go out to work. Some of you even furloughed. And yet, I don't know that I, unless someone was hiding it from me, that I got any message from someone being homeless. Don't know that there was someone who messaged the church to say, listen, we can't afford, no, not, no one in London anyhow, say so can't eat three meals a day. Some of you have invested most of your money, money this year in one month, last month, eating out to help out. That's where you invest most of your money, and all you're going to get back is paying full price in a, year to, in a, year, in a year's time. Right? We, we are wealthy people. And actually, a crisis like this, and how you maneuver it, and what, what do you want on the other side of it? What have you been most worried about and more, more, most anxious about? may then be the perfect time. This may be the perfect time for revealing our heart towards money. And we have the perfect story for doing that in this, name, in, in this story here. Of course, especially with Gehazi's response to all that happens around him. So you know the story is fairly straightforward. This Syrian general is not from Israel, has nothing to do with the religion of Israel, but because of his leprosy, devastating skin disease that can be fatal. Um, it's the likelihood is that this is some kind of skin disease. We often think of, uh, when we think of leprosy today, we often think of what is called Hansen's disease, and which, which then has the capacity to um, le le cause folk to lose limb and so on and so forth. It's unlikely that's the kind of thing that Naaman had. He, he's a general, he's a war general, uh, a five-star one at that. What is more, more likely is that this, it was which was a typical example of biblical leprosy, which was, it was, it was a skin disease that you couldn't hide. And of course, as I say, it could be, could be fatal. For an Israelite, it meant that you weren't even allowed to do a lot of things. You weren't allowed to serve in certain areas. So Naaman wouldn't have been a general if he was in Israel. But he is because he's in Syria. They don't have the laws of God. And he's seeking healing for this leprosy. An Israelite made that he has captured or his people have captured in war commends the great prophet Elisha. Um, the king of Israel doesn't even know about Elisha, right? He, he doesn't even know that there's an Elisha. In, his, in fact, when he gets the message, he's like, these guys are trying to start war, right? Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a typical ex example of how uh, the world is often ignorant of where God dwells and where God's presence is, even in a nation like this. Um, today, it's not the churches that are being celebrated. It's not the churches that are full to capacity. It's the football stadiums. It's the concert halls. But this is where God dwells. Uh, but uh, they were he was ignorant. Anyhow, Naaman was able to be directed to this Elisha. He received his healing after humbly, even though it was difficult for him, humbly obeying Elisha's command for him to go and dip himself in water. Go and wash yourself in the River Jordan. Humble, humbly approach the God of Israel. You receive healing. Naaman is healed. Naaman is converted more than just physically healed. He's converted. He's spiritually healed. He comes to see that this is the, the true God. I want to follow him. This is... This is amazing. This is, this is not the typical thing you see, that the, the, the nations would come to the God of Israel. Elisha, in wanting to maintain the integrity of the prophetic office, refuses the gifts that Naaman brings for him. Naaman says, listen, I want to, be, I want to thank you by giving you these gifts. 
gifts that are luxurious gifts, expensive gifts. Elijah says, no, I'm, I'm gonna sh- I, I need to remind you that you cannot buy the goodness of God. I don't want you to make, it, to, to make you think you can put a price on God's goodness. And Naaman says, okay, I, I bow to your uh, discretion. And then we read towards the end of this chapter that there's this servant of Naaman's, of, of Elisha, sorry, Gehazi, who had worked, he had been working with Elisha. He had seen God do marvelous things through the prophet Elisha. He was a servant to the prophet, an assistant to the prophet. And we see his greed. Runs back to Naaman when they're distance apart. Conjures up a story. Please, uh, my master actually wants so-and-so. Takes the wealth, goes to hide it. God, God exposes him to the prophet. And we end up reading about how he's judged with Naaman's judgment. Because he refused to be content. It's a story of greed. And how greed can have devastating consequences for even those who profess to believe. Because let's not forget that Gehazi is an assistant to the prophet. That's why in First Timothy, actually, a lot of what is said about wealth is actually directed towards the ministers in the church even. You know, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a minister. He's writing to him, at least for the, the, first, the, the initial portion, where he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. He's writing to Timothy. Make sure you're content. If you're a greedy minister, if you're a greedy pastor, you'll, you'll make a mess of your office. And then Timothy goes on to charge all believers, all Christians, even Christians that are rich, have to be wary of not allowing riches to take over our hearts and becoming more to us than God himself. Before I, I'm going to draw three simple thoughts from Gehazi's, Gehazi's experience and commend them to you and commend them to your heart. Paul tells us that these Old Testament narratives exist to give us an example, to, as a warning, to teach us about how to, about the faithful worship of God, to encourage us, to exhort us. Before I do so, let me say something. And, I, and, and I'll, I'll tell you why I'm saying, I'll, I'll tell you why I do this in a moment. About Naaman's conversion. Let, let me pause to highlight to you. I'm gonna, and this is what I want to highlight to you about this. The kind of wondrous story of grace that we're seeing here. There's a number of clues in the narrative that are remarkable. And can only be present. They can only be there because what God wants to tell us that he had done a wonderful work in the life of Naaman. Many folks have said that Naaman's conversion and his pledging his loyalty to the God of Israel is one of the most remarkable examples of a person doing so, not just in the Old Testament, but in the entire Bible. And I am inclined to absolutely agree. Let me trace some clues for you so that you realize it's a wondrous story of grace. This is that story that we tell sometimes when we speak about our testimony. Oh, happy day that fixed my choice on you. This is, this is the, we, the Christian is familiar with these details. You're familiar, familiar with these developments. You're familiar with this story. You, a similar work has happened to you that makes you till this day sing that God's grace is amazing. One, Naaman is not an Israelite. He has no right to enjoy that which God had given to his own people of Israel. He's a Syrian. It means he's a Gentile. 
But not just that, he means, it means that he's actually an enemy of Israel, at least at points. So when we come to this chapter, it's clear that there must be some kind of peace. But when you realize how the king of Israel re- responds to the initial uh, request, and he says, this guy wants to fight, you realize how tense things could have been between these nations. In many ways, he belongs to a nation that has often been the enemy of God's people. But God has his elect, and they're spread across the atlas. God's elect are all over the world. It's a story of grace. That although God does not have to, he chooses. It's not that I chose you. That could not be. This heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. This is Naaman from Syria, a Syrian general that could do nothing to have earned the grace of God. But it was to him. Jesus Christ takes this viewpoint of it in the book of Luke. It was to him that God's grace was made known. And it's a story of God's grace. It's why we preach the gospel. Because we, got, we know God knows his people. And, they, and they're all around the world. From different tribes. And different nations. And different countries. And um, God has chosen them. That's one thing. Is he's not an Israelite. He's a Syrian. Another thing is. He's a general in the army. Look, look at his description in verse 1. He's the commander of the army. He was a great man. Naaman was a wealthy man. A man who had everything that, you could, that he needed in this present world as far as possessions are concerned. And Jesus Christ is very clear. It is a difficult thing. In fact, an impossible thing for a rich person to trust Jesus Christ. Who then can be saved? Well, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Not many mighty are saved because men are so consumed in the pride of riches. It's such a hard thing to convince someone who is wealthy that they need Jesus. Such a hard thing to convince England that can stand strong even under the weight of a coronavirus that they need Jesus. Such a hard thing to convince Millennials who are doing great in so many areas of their life, who, who are so full of their own knowledge and wisdom, who have so much access to technology and to knowledge and to experiences, to convince them that their lives are empty, empty without God. For a man that thinks his life is so full, such a hard thing. To give them a tract and expect them to read it. To expect them to give you the time of day to this. But God can save the mighty. That's what we see here. This man had no business being saved. He was a Syrian. He was rich. He wasn't about to. You see in his response. Come and trust the God of Israel, they say. And when he eventually gets there. And Naaman, Elisha doesn't even come out to him. Because Elisha has to show him that he must be humble before the God of the universe. Go and wash yourself in the Jordan River. He says, what? That, that, that. Do you know how many rivers I traveled past before I came here? Such a hard thing to convert the mighty, but God can do so. It's a wondrous story of grace. Sometimes you, you look at someone and you say this, but no chance they'll be a Christian. They have everything. They believe so many lies. They love so many sinful people. But God can save. It's the wondrous story of Grace. Let me tell you another thing in chapter 5. It's a curious detail. It amazes me. Speaking about this pagan general, the Bible says 
in verse 1 that God gave him victory by Syria. It's, it reads like the language of covenant faithfulness, the kind of thing that God does for his own. God gives victory to his people. But here we, we read that God gave Naaman victory. But Naaman is not one of God's people. Naaman is not converted. Naaman is not a servant of God. I think the detail is there, is there to remind us. One, what we already know, that actually God is God over all the universe. Over the saved and the unsaved. It's, it's so sad. Oh, that men would pro- praise the Lord. Oh, that England knew, right, that it was God that kept us this past few months. Not hard-working scientists, not intelligent government leaders, but God was the one who has been merciful so that we haven't collapsed, so that we haven't been consumed. Oh, that men would know that. They don't know that. They, they would even take this time. This is what's going to happen. We're going to make it through this period, find some, a way to, to deal with the coronavirus, and, and men are going to say, what do we need God for? So sad. But here's, that detail is crucial. But here's the thing. I think the reason why this is highlighted is probably indicating to us something of the mysteriousness of God's providence when he wants to bring his own home. God had been at work in the life of Naaman even before Naaman knew it. When Naaman had this victory over Syria, I don't think... He turned around and said, praise be to the God of Israel. Praise be to Jehovah. No, he bowed to his pagan gods. And yet, God was at work in his life. Even when he did not know it. It's a story of grace. Sometimes, Christians might even fall into that trap. Of acting as though God was only with us. Has only been with us since we, since we became Christians. Since we answered an altar call, since we said a sinner's prayer, since we trusted ourselves and trusted ourselves into Jesus' hands and decided to follow him. Oh, that's when I, I was converted at 17 and God has been with me since. Oh, friends, I understand what you might be saying there, but isn't it true that God had been with you before? If it has not been that God had kept you, would you have made it to 17 to be saved? The providences of God, the doors he opens and closes so that you must come under the message of the gospel. One hymn, um, when all thy mercies, oh my God, says, unnumbered comforts on my soul, your tender care bestowed before my infant heart could even conceive from whom those blessings flowed. In the great hymn, Abide With Me, there's a stanza we don't often sing, but it's actually probably my favorite stanza, and it says, Thou on my head in early youth you smiled, and though I was rebellious and perverse, meanwhile, you have not left me off as I left thee. How God kept us so we could know him. When we did not know him, he didn't allow me to die when I was young. He didn't allow you to make it to certain universities. He closed certain jobs. He put you in a certain family. Things we will never be able to explain. The way he interwove our providences. We can never explain. But God was at work just so I could come to know him. The mysterious providence of God, which means he was blessing me while I was cursing him. There's the maid. Sorry, before I get there, there's the fact that he was a leper. You see what God did for Naaman? 
In all this that Naaman had achieved, God was able to show him his emptiness. The Bible says, and verse 1 reads like it wants you to recognize it. Naaman was a great man. He was in high favor with the king. God had given him great victory. He was a mighty man of valor. He was, but he was a leper. God had made sure there was this thing in Naaman's life that revealed the fragility of life, the frailty of life, the emptiness of life. Don't we pray for that? That God would show in the lives of men and women who are still running from him. Show them something that will allow them to see that they need God. And your life is empty without him. That's what God did for Naaman. He was a leper. It was something he would have been ashamed of. But now I'm looking at the wondrous story of grace. If not for his leprosy, Naaman would not seek cleansing from the God of the universe. Thank God for those hard providences. Thank God for the ways in which he convinces us of our need. I don't know what it was for you. What made you think as a young person or as an older person? What was it that God used to show you that you were in need of him? Some of you, it's a failed relationship. Some of you, it's some vice that you fell into that let you see that you were not what you thought you were. Pain and suffering, sometimes even blessings. But God uses all these things to show us that we need him. And then there's this maid. When Naaman has a need, who points him to the God of Israel. This maid that he captured, slave, who would have had no authority. But as God is weaving the providence, she begins to earn the trust of her mistress. And she one day is able to say, actually, you know, there's a God in Israel who would heal this man. There are prophets in Israel who would heal this man. Thank God for those who he places in our lives to witness to us about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This young girl whose voice would not have been respected but had been ordained to see the most precious things in the world. You know, very often, airtime is given to our presidents and our kings, and yet it's little maids who are saying the most important thing in the world. It's little children who are saying, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me say so. Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gates to open wide, who are saying the most precious truths in the universe. Thank God for the witness. And friends, may God use us like he used those maids. May we not be ashamed to witness to Jesus Christ because we don't know how the Spirit will move through our feeble testimony, through our feeble witness to rot, earth-shaking things like conversion. Thank God for the ways in which he ordained us to hear about him. This maid, this young maid who says is a God in Israel. Thank God for how he overlooked Naaman's pride. Initially, Naaman was about to turn back. Can't do this. I don't need this. I'm greater than this. And oh, friends, how many, how many people on their way to Christ, Satan has been tugging for their souls, saying, but, but the Bible has inconsistencies. But, but, but Christians are the biggest hypocrites. All kinds of lies that that, that Satan wants to use to take us away from the gospel and to flare up our pride. But we thank God for how he knows to subdue us, subdue our pride. Because, friends, you can't come to God if you're proud. The Bible says God gives grace to the humble. But what would men and women do who are just innately prideful? 
who are so innately concerned to save face. So concerned. How many of us were so slow and stuttered to come to the Lord because we knew if we followed him, we would lose face among some camp. We would lose certain friends. We, will, we wouldn't be able to, 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 to join in certain, uh, with certain traditions and with, with certain people who we thought were of a higher class. And how many of us started to come to God for that? And thank God for the, the ways in which he subdues our pride. The strength he gives. Thank God for the cleansing power. You know, when Elisha tells him, go to the Jordan. Elisha is doing this. He's saying to Naaman, you need to humble yourself before God. But also... No one else can save you but God. It's not going to be the work of a prophet laying hands on you. Now, it could have been that way, but to, to clearly show to Naaman that it was God who saves. He says, go and dip yourself in the River Jordan seven times. It would be to um, ancient Hebrews a reminder of the complete, complete work of God. And I don't think we can miss the picture of water for this leper. That he needs to be cleansed. It's what water does. Water cleanses you, it washes you. It's a purifier, but we know that there is something far greater than water that we commend. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We tell women and men, regardless of where you're from, what you've done, who you are, there is blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins and it can cleanse you. Come, to Jesus for the cleansing power. Isn't that why we gather to worship him? Because he washed us. He washed me white as snow. Because we wake up every morning knowing we've been cleansed. I've been washed. I've been washed. I've been washed in the blood. And it makes me pure. It makes me white as snow. It makes me righteous. It means that I'm right with God. Thank God for the cleansing power that purges our guilt and purges our fears. And then the work of faith and repentance in Naaman is remarkable for this Syrian general to confess the God of the universe. He says to Elisha, give me some of the, the earth. Now, of course, there's a bit of primitivity about this at the time. But he, he says, give me some of the, the, the sand here, the, the, the earth, the clay. I want to take it back to make it clear that my worship will now go alone to the God of Israel. Isn't that a work of grace for you and I to believe God and turn to him and trust him and say, I'm going to follow him? Isn't it a work of grace that we all know of? Is there anything greater that's happened to you than the day when the Lord, by his irresistible grace, gave you the gift of faith? And lastly, look at the separation from the world. Oh, one of the things that often swallows up faith is the world. But Naaman says, and this is a, it's a curious verse where he says to Elisha, I need to go back to my king. And my king worships a false god. Can you imagine that? Only a few days perhaps have passed since he was dipped in the water of Jordan. Now he's saying, my gods, my gods, the gods in my nation are false gods. Only God's grace can make us do that. To turn our back on our false gods that we worship. Naaman says that. They're false gods. And it's a curious verse. He says, but when I go back home, my king is going to think that I have to, he's going to still make me go to the temple. It's part of our national rituals. So when I go there, I'm going to have to like, just act like I'm worshiping. I don't, I'm not worshiping it, but I'm going to act. You know, Elijah, can we, well, I think God forgives his immaturity. What is clear is there is a, 
desire to turn to the true and living God. Oh, my friends, it's God's grace. That means that we can say bye to the world. Goodbye to the world. Sometimes it feels like a painful breakup, but God's grace at work in our hearts, making us flee that world and run to an eternal world to come. Why have I spent all this time saying all this? Because, friends, this wonderful work of grace that absolutely money could never buy is what Gehazi is not afraid to corrupt, is what Gehazi is not afraid to despise. You see, the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of God for his church, is what Gehazi, in a sense, is not afraid to try and trade for. The deceitfulness of riches. That we could be in that position as Christians. And because of greed, because we want money so much, we would also be willing to trade, attempt to trade eternal life. And we have to be warned. And so Paul, Paul warns us against the love. Don't love riches. There's a deceitfulness about riches. And it's directed especially to Christians, as to Christians as well, to unbelievers as well. To unbelievers, if you are trusting in your riches now, I'll make this point a little later, but how foolish you are. But to the Christian who has tasted grace, let me say then just these things about Gehazi, and we'll come to the Lord's table. One, as we see from Gehazi, is that the love of money will corrupt true religion. Why does Elisha refuse these gifts? He does not want to give a distorted view of grace and of God's goodness and of God's way. Elisha wants Naaman to know, you cannot buy, you cannot earn the goodness of God. Naaman would have been used to serving at altars where the gods needed gifts to pacify them and to incur their favor. Elisha says, my God is the God of the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need anything. If he did, he wouldn't ask you. The world is his. I want you to see that God must give you grace and give you freely. You can do nothing to earn from God. I want to give you a genuine, I want you to have a genuine experience, an authentic experience of what true religion is, what it means to truly follow the Lord, to truly know God. He's, he's concerned to give Naaman a true understanding of grace. Gehazi, because of greed, could not care less. He had to have understood why his master rejected the offering. But because of greed, in fact, he, he attempts to rationalize it. He says in verse 20, why did my master spare this Syrian? Have you forgotten that what the Syrians did to us? Have you forgotten that when Israel departed from Egypt, they, they, they plunged? Uh, plundered them, they, they took, as it were, um, they, they, they took gifts from the Egyptians, they took compensation. That's, he, he attempts to, to put a religious spin on it. He even says, as, he says, uh, as the Lord lives, I will run after him. He, he attempts to make it seem like he's doing the will of God. But really, he's following now a corrupt religion. The love of money in our lives will corrupt our true religion. Make us think that godliness is a means of gain. 
We only come to God because of what he can give us. The kind of people that dance and jump in praise and worship just because they want to make sure that they don't lose their job the next day. But not because they feel like the God of the universe is worthy of their lives. The kind of men and women who give tithes and offerings because they hope that this way they can buy God into keeping the other 90% that they spend as they please and hopefully buy a mask that will somehow disguise the fact that they are living in rebellion to God. You cannot buy God with your money. It's a false religion. Serving God because of what we think we can get. The love of money will do that to us. But there will be no true religion. Godliness will just be a form. It won't be true. It's a form of godliness when there's a love of money. All right? And so you see it because our lips are shut when it's time to speak up for the truth because we're so afraid of what we're going to lose. Uh, today, Christians are doing everything they can to just evade corruption, now, I'm, evade persecution. Sorry. Now, I'm all for, I, I, I'm, I'll be the first to say you should avoid, if you can avoid uh, persecution in the right way, of course you should. If you can avoid suffering in the right way, you should. You should be wise in this world. But, you know, after a while, you see that our unwillingness to lose anything because we're Christians, has eventually become just a sign that we become greedy and covetous. We love money, just like the world does. No vital religion, just nominal religion. The love of money will do that to you. you, you the love of money will mean that people call themselves Christian, but there's no difference in how we live. Christian mothers and fathers raise their children with the same priority that the world does. Giving their children the same ambitions the world has. Christian marriages, where couples do marriage in the same way the world does. They're power couples. They're just there to improve and increase their, 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 their profit and to increase their financial power. No, no sacrifices made for the kingdom of God. We, we also go to work and work just like the world does. Doggy dog world. Do all you can to make it. So all that matters to us. Because that's the way to get up. Well, that's all that counts. There's no godliness. We've traded it for gain. And, and, and if this love of money really takes root in our hearts, we're even willing to alter the gospel. That's what the prosperity gospel is. The love of money will corrupt true religion. It will change how a preacher preaches. Because he wants to be accepted on primetime television. He has to alter certain things. Second thing the love of money does, it will corrupt devotion. The love of money will corrupt devotion. Gehazi was, had, no, had no reason to be loyal to Naaman. The person who he was serving was Elisha, the great, priest of Israel, great prophet of Israel. But instead, he's willing to betray Elisha's trust. For the sake of money, he waits for his master to go away. He lies to Naaman, not caring about the reputation of Elisha possibly being soiled. He tries to hide the money. The master asks him where he's been. He lies about that too. His loyalty is gone. His devotion is gone because of money. Brothers and sisters, we will know if we have been captured by the love of money, if we've lost devotion to the things of God. No devotion to him. No commitment to him. 
And that's a healthy way to measure what our devotion is like. To what are we giving our time, our efforts, our minds? Christians will come up with all sorts of ingenious ways to have a side hustle. And have not thought of anything to improve the work of the local churches. Christians become Einstein with the mind when it comes to the best ways to make money in the current market. And are the most listless, the most absent when it comes to serving in God's church. What's our devotion like? You meditate and read all these things about how you can improve your wealth and have little acquaintance of God's word. You don't meditate on that day and night. It's so sad how money can steal our devotion to Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you feel in your mind right now you're a Christian, but in your mind you must be rich at all costs, you are carving for yourself a false god. The Bible says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Do we have food? Do we have shelter? Do we have clothing? For us, that's what we, we can be content with that, knowing that God sufficiently supplies our needs. But the love of money will steal our devotion to Christ. I've, seen, I've given this example before about the, the music industry and how um, soul music in, the, in America was, for, for the most part, soul music that had become such a big industry in America was, for the most part, popularized by singers, the finest singers, all started in the church, as we say. They sang in the church, from your Aretha Franklins to your Sam Cooks, even to your Whitney Houston's. They were singing in the church. That's when they honed their skills, singing about precious Jesus. And I'm not particularly speaking about those artists, but in general, so many of them you could see were all too willing to trade songs about Jesus for songs that could get them money, to trade singing to God's people for singing to thousands, millions, because of the love of money. Music career for your soul. In the past month or so, because of the virus, we've had a weird uh, experience of having singers. Some of the best singers in the UK, in my opinion, if you doubt me, when you get the time, watch X Factor, and you realize that some of the guys, yeah, we have some of the best singers here in the UK here, right? And these guys are wonderful singers, and they could sing in front of thousands. And they could make their millions by singing. But there is nothing like singing about Jesus. Nothing like singing to God's people. And you guys might be saying, oh, well, no one's offered me no contract, relax. But I'm saying to you, don't be surprised that Satan will tempt you with this world. If he could do it, he will do you with the fame he will test your devotion. Friends, let us be all for Jesus Christ. Give our devotion to him. But the love of money will make you be lax about your devotion, about your commitment to the cause of Christ. Do you want God or do you want money? You can't have both. You must make a choice. What are you devoted to? And the love of money will corrupt true faith. In the end, Gehazi has the same leprosy that he saw his prophet instruct Naaman to be healed of. It's almost a picture of a man who has made shipwreck of his faith. 
There I have to quote the Apostle Paul, who says that for the love of money, which is the root of, the love of money is the root of all evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs because he loved money. Those that will be rich, those that desire to be rich and think that they have to be rich in this world will fall into all kinds of temptations, all kinds of traps, into many foolish and hurtful lusts, says Paul. Your faith is at stake. You can't serve both. The love of money will corrupt true faith. It will have you questioning who is really God, who you should really serve, who you should really trust. For the Christian, there's no debate, no question. We cannot love money. Let me close by saying these, these, these three things. What's interesting about how Paul addresses money in 1 Timothy 6 is that ultimately, riches are an illusion. Earthly riches are an illusion. There's a great deception about them. So for example, in verse 16 when, of 1 Timothy 6, when John, sorry, verse 17, when, when Paul is speaking to the rich, he says, as for those who are rich in this world, Paul's saying, true riches are not to be found here. They're to be found in the world to come. This world is only for a brief moment. Eternity is on the other side. That's what you should be worried about. If you're rich, you're only rich in this world. It's a very small thing compared to eternity. Again, he says, tell them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Riches are an illusion. They're not even certain. They don't, they don't, they don't, they don't, they're not certain. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow. Your riches cannot purchase your soul. The rich man and the, the, the poor man go to the same grave. Perhaps the rich man in a, in a, in a, in a more expensive coffin. Perhaps the rich man in a more, with a more uh, robust funeral celebration. But we're going to the grave. We're going to stand before God in judgment. Riches are an illusion. They don't make you a better person. For the most part, they often make people worse. They don't make you more, riches don't make you more, more generous. They don't make you more useful. For the most part, they make us less than. People always say, if only I had so and so much, so much money, I would really be helping people out. The fact that you're not helping people out is the proof you need that the more money you have, even fewer people would you be helping out. At least for now, because you're poor, you sit with us. And at least you help us out because you allow us to talk to you. Let money come your way. And if you're not helping people out now, it's going to be a terrible time. Riches are an illusion. They do not define anything. They're hollow. They don't give substance to your soul or character. They don't give meaning. They don't give true hope. They're an illusion. You can't bank on them. You cannot bank on them. Why do you define who you are by how much is in your bank account? Why do you allow what you're making to be the definition of who you are when one day you have to stand before God? When God sees your heart more than he sees your wages and more than he sees your designer clothing and more than he sees your possessions, he sees your heart and that's all that matters. And as we come to the Lord's table today, friends, can I not call you to examine yourself? Examine yourself. What is my relationship with wealth like? I came across a, a book and the author 
uh, called True Riches, and the author, while speaking on the book, said he wanted to give people a biblical framework for riches. One, he said, that would move us from treating riches with pride to gratitude. So when we have money, we're, more, we're focused far more on being thankful than we are on being prideful. That would move people from covetousness to contentment. How we think about money. Not, how much, not, not making more and being covetous, but being content and thanking God for what he has provided. He said that would move us from anxiety to trust. Not always worrying about how much we have or don't have, but trusting God to provide. That would move us from indifference to love. Not being focused on amassing more, but giving more so we can serve the cause of Christ in our world. Let's examine ourselves because riches choke faith. And lastly, I think the most painful thing about a believer being consumed by a love of money is that Jesus Christ is often referred to as the pearl of greatest price. The most expensive thing you can have, if I can say that to you, is Jesus Christ. The one who has Jesus Christ is never poor. He became, he who was rich, became poor. So that you and I could be rich. It's the painful thing. I found the pearl of greatest price. My heart does sing for joy. Sing I must, for Christ is mine. Pray shall my tongue employ. We have everything we need in Christ. We have something that money cannot buy. My brothers and sisters, if we feel empty because we are not rich, what does that say of the blood of Jesus Christ that you cannot place value on? If we define ourselves, if we find our confidence in what we have, what does it say about the God who sent his son to die for us so that one day he could usher us into true riches that never fail? Let's repent of that. And let me call anyone who this morning you listen to me and you know that all you have in this life are riches. That's all you have in this life. I guarantee you, you are the poorest of them all. If all you have in this life is riches, earthly riches, then you are the poorest of people. True riches is to be found in the Son of God who died and rose again so he could bring sinners, you and I, to God. And his blood is able to save. Come to Jesus Christ because you and I have to one day face the grave. Come to Jesus Christ because you and I have to one day stand before our God who we have sinned against. Come to Jesus Christ because he's the only one who has overcome death. Come to Jesus Christ because he is so full and with him there is no emptiness. Come to Jesus Christ and there you receive true riches. Amen.